Welcome to another streaming episode of the Yay, Nay, or Mare podcast. I am your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. And this is going to be a very, very lengthy streaming episode of this podcast, following hot on the heels of a very, very lengthy cinematic episode of this podcast. Dealing with all the films I saw over the Christmas and New Year period and just didn't have the time to record about because I was beavering away on my YouTube channel and trying to get various things past copyright protections. But yes, I have six films for you in this streaming episode. Two of them are what often happens to me. Films that I rented onto my tablet from the Google TV store and then needed to watch quickly before the rentals ran out. So we have the French animated film My Father's Secrets, which deals with the second generation after the Holocaust. And we have a two-person American indie film called Sanctuary, which looked really, really interesting. And the rest of the films reviewed in this particular episode have some level of Oscar buzz surrounding them. On Netflix, we have the documentary directed by Roger Ross Williams, Stamped from the Beginning, which has ended up on the 15-film long list for documentary feature Oscar. And a couple of biopics on Netflix as well, Nyad and Rustin both of which have got their leading performers Golden Globe nominations already and are very, very likely to get Oscar nominations as well. And also, to close out this particular episode, we have the narrative feature debut of the documentarian Roger Ross Williams, Cassandro, with Gal Garcia Bernal playing a queer Mexican wrestler. And that is kind of the cornerstone of this particular episode because one of the things I've been spending all my time on is trying to get a reaction video to this film, Cassandro, online, which is proving rather difficult because I used a lot of clips because I went quite deep into the history of queer representation in wrestling. But yes, it's my own fault. But that is still not online at time of recording, but hopefully it will be soon. So, anyway, in this special streaming episode of the ANA or Mare podcast, I will be reviewing the animation My Father's Secrets, Sanctuary, the documentary Stamped from the Beginning, Nyad, Rustin, and Cassandro. And without any further ado, let's get on with this, what will probably be a very, very long episode. VOD Reviews my Father's Secrets is a French animated film directed by the 91-year-old Vera Belmont, who has an extensive career in the French film industry, mostly as a producer, 
but an occasional writer and director of films. This is her first animated film, and her other directorial efforts have been few and far between. Over the last 50 years, Vera Belmont has directed seven films. And she hasn't actually directed a film since 2007. So it's taken her 16 years to make another film, and she decided to make an animated film. And her last film was somewhat notorious, <laughs> which was not her fault, but. Surviving with Wolves was based on a best-selling memoir of a young Jewish girl who survived the Second World War alone and accompanied only by a pack of wolves. And she managed to traverse from her home in Belgium all the way to Ukraine and back, just accompanied by wolves. And this was a best-selling memoir, and it was turned into this film by Vera Belmont. But just before this film, Surviving with Wolves, was released into French cinemas, it was revealed that this memoir was a hoax. None of it happened. And that naturally led to the not great success of surviving with wolves and it's taken vera belmont 16 years to make another film at the age of 91 and actually the whole saga of the misha d'alfonso case and this hoax memoir is documented in the rather good documentary misha and the wolves which i believe you can find on netflix at the moment but anyway this latest film is similar to Surviving with Wolves in that it is an adaptation of a memoir which deals with the Jewish experience of the Second World War. In this case, it is the second generation experience of Holocaust survivors and is based on the graphic autobiographical novel by the Belgian born Israeli artist. Michelle Kishka. And it tells the story of Michelle Kishka growing up in post war Belgium, learning about his Jewish identity and wanting to know more, but being you know, saved and protected by his Auschwitz survivor father, who locks himself away in his study and, and writes these memoirs, but absolutely refuses to share any details of his experiences during the Second World War in Auschwitz with his four children. And over the years, a building resentment grows up around this subject, particularly when Michel Kishka's father becomes a very, very public advocate for Holocaust survivors and goes all around the world on speaking tours and speaks to students about his experiences in Auschwitz but he never talks to his children. And a huge amount of resentment gradually builds up over the years about this fact. And eventually, after fresh tragedies, 
there is some kind of reconciliation between father and son. But this is the experience of the second generation, the children of Auschwitz survivors. And that's not something you often hear about. And the English dub of this film actually has a really, really impressive cast. Elliot Gould plays the father of this family. His wife is Tracy Ann Oberman, and the young Michelle is voiced by the young actor Ilan Galkoff. But the narrator of the film, the adult Michelle, is voiced by David Baddiel. And we also have Miriam Margulies as a vocal performance as a fellow Auschwitz survivor who runs the local sweet shop in this industrial Belgian town. So a really, really good cast for the English dub. Unfortunately, I don't think they quite had the money to make the dub fully sync up with the French language original, so it's a little elegant in terms of execution, but in terms of quality of the vocal performances they got, very, very impressive. But it does stand out that Elliot Gould's American accent, surrounded by lots of British accents, is a little weird. So, yes, the English dub is available on generic streaming platforms. I personally got mine off the Google Play Store, as I always do. Although, within a couple of days as I'm recording this, I'm going to have to switch over to Google TV on my tablet or YouTube on my browser. But anyway... You can find it online readily available. And yeah, this is a really interesting film. It is very much about that gap between the generation who actually went through the Second World War actually went to places like Auschwitz and the children of those people who both want to know and don't want to know the awful truths of what happens to their parents. And you understand the reasons why Michelle Kishka's father, Henri Kishka, didn't share details with his children. But at a certain point when it becomes clear that you know a barrier is being built because of this, Maybe he should have done something. Maybe he should have said, okay, you are probably old enough by now. These are the things that happened to me. Becoming this advocate, but steadfastly refusing to talk to his actual family. I mean, sharing his story with absolutely everybody except his children, which is a really big deal. But I I think this is a story about trauma and different ways of dealing with trauma and it has a common cope in animation i mean if you look for it this trope is in many many disney and pixar films the overprotective parent you see that trope over and over and over again and this is another example i mean it's a recognizable example it's an understandable example but it is an example nonetheless and yeah, the point at which protecting your children is just 
lying to your children and not giving them any details builds up this huge amount of resentment. And there's other factors which go into it as well. But this this is a really interesting story about the, the father-son relationship. I mean, particularly since, you know, Michelle Kishka is a graphic novelist and he, he apparently does political cartoons for Israeli newspapers. And he learnt to draw from his father. Uh, and th- there's one of the things which repeatedly comes up in this narration given by the adult Michelle Kishka, voiced by David Baddiel, saying, yeah, what my favourite times with my father was sitting next to him and drawing uh, and learning his techniques. And also having to deal with Jewish identity at large. In post-war Belgium, in the industrial town of Sarang, just outside Liège, there weren't all that many Jews in young Michel's school. Oh yes, there was a, a Jewish neighbourhood, uh, and there's a sequence where he goes to all the Jewish shops that say, look at my test results, aren't I great? Because, yeah, that's one of the things which happens in this little community. And there's one non-Jewish shop in this street. But at school, he and his brother are very, very much in the minority. And you know, having a first crush on a very blonde, very Christian girl, and eventually her father steps in and puts a stop to this Jew dating his daughter, and you know, having to learn that that kind of thing happens. And you know, learning tangentially, learning through osmosis almost, the horrors and the traumas of this Jewish community, particularly his father and the the sweet shop lady voiced by Miriam Margulies, who actually were in Auschwitz, particularly when the Adolf Eichmann trial is on television. And picking up tangentially some of these details and making that part of the Jewish identity, which he has grown up with or has not grown up with, because you know his father, for, I suppose, natural reasons, isn't particularly religious, doesn't particularly want his children going to synagogue, but his mother does. So he goes through the bar mitzvah and all that kind of stuff, but it, it doesn't appear that he's particularly religious, but this all goes into his identity and the relationship he has with his father. So yeah. This is an interesting film about trauma. It's an interesting film about the father-son relationship. It's an interesting film about the Jewish experience. Done in a pretty digestible way, I think, for a slightly younger audience. This would be a good introduction to themes about the Holocaust. The BBFC has given this film a 12, which appears about right, and not a 12A, a 12, which actually very, very rarely see nowadays. But, yeah, that does feel about right. And, yeah, it's, yeah, well animated and all that kind of stuff. I mean, a very Euro comics kind of style, that broad 2D flattened look similar to things like Urge. that's the kind of thing you're getting it's a 
well-structured story. It's a well-intentioned story. It's a pretty basic story. I mean, I did see this on the the VOD releases at the end of 2023, and I was intrigued by it. I thought there was a chance that this would end up on the official eligible lists for the animated feature Oscar. Uh, it ended up not being on that list. But I don't regret watching My Father's Secrets. It's a decent animated film. It's a decent story. And for those who need it, it is a very good introduction to themes about the Holocaust. So, yeah. A nice little animation with a very, very impressive English voice cast. And for me, My Father's Secrets, available on general VOD platforms, is a solid meh. Changing directions quite significantly, (laughs) the other generic VOD streaming film I watched over the Christmas and New Year period was Sanctuary, a risque, two-handed American indie film, which I had been seeing buzz about for quite some time since it premiered at the 2022 Toronto Film Festival. I started seeing people talking about it online and finally it got released onto the Google TV store towards the end of 2023. So I bought myself a rental of it and then had to rush to watch it before the rental ran out, which always seems to happen. But anyway, yes, I did watch Sanctuary, which is the second film from director Zachary Wygon. Wygon? Wygon? I'm not sure. Uh, His first film doesn't appear to have got UK distribution. And it is written by Micah Bloomberg, the writer behind the successful fiction podcast Homecoming which was then turned into a TV show on Amazon Prime. So he seems to have a little bit of footprint in the pop culture world. But yes, Zachary Wygon and Michael Bloomberg bring us Sanctuary, which stars Christopher Abbott and Margaret Qualley. And as the film starts, Christopher Abbott is in a luxurious hotel room and margaret crawley knocks on the door and enters and at first it appears that margaret crawley is some kind of paralegal lawyer some kind of official who is dealing with christopher abbott's inheritance because christopher abbott's hotel mogul father has recently died and christopher abbott is just about to take over the company but as this meeting to sign some documents progresses it becomes clear that margaret qualley is actually a dominatrix and christopher abbott has paid for this scene to play out for him to be humiliated and degraded and give up his power to this attractive woman. And as the scene ends, Christopher Abbott and the quote-unquote real Margaret Qualley, I mean, she takes her blonde wig off, 
sit down to have a meal, and Christopher Abbott casually says, I'm really going to miss this. Which pricks up the ears of Margaret Crawley. She was kind of under the impression that this was a regular gig. But Christopher Abbott's perspective is that now he is going to be CEO of this hotel conglomerate, he cannot have the risk of his proclivities becoming public, so these sessions need to stop. And Margaret Qualley is not happy about this, and a power struggle commences, which plays out over the course of the evening, with Margaret Qualley depending on how you look at it, tries to blackmail Christopher Abbott or tries to get the money which she's worth. I mean, the sessions that they've been having for quite some time have increased the confidence, increased the standing of Christopher Abbott. So Margaret Qualley asks for what she's worth and the power dynamics and the power struggles uh, and the reality of everything we are seeing over the course of this evening plays out with just these two people in this one hotel room and going out into the hall and to the elevator and we briefly see an old couple but the only two people who have significant screen time are Chris Robert and Margaret Qualley So already this is ticking a couple of my personal boxes, a couple of things, a couple of types of films which I really, really like. And that is very, very contained stories with just two people on screen and also a story where pretty much nothing you see on screen can be taken on face value. If you didn't know the dominatrix thing, the the opening scenes play out and you think, oh, this is just a a lawyer or something and and she's got documents to sign. And gradually this morphs into a more sexual situation. I mean, kind of, you know, the porn scenario, the, the rich, powerful man and the woman who comes into his sphere of influence and then she turns the tables and starts dominating him. But then you realise that Christopher Abbott has a very, very specific need from Margaret Qualley, to the extent he's written an extensive script for Margaret Qualley to follow. And that's one of the things which becomes part of the dynamic over the course of this one evening is when is Margaret Qualley following the script, and when is she not? When is she working on her own benefit? And you're never 100% sure. And the dynamics between these two people, I mean, the the rich man who, to some degree, is playing up the cliches. I mean, part of this scenario, which we, we open the film, is is that Christopher Abbott is, you know, the the drug addict, the waster, the layabout, who is going to take over his father's company and is going to destroy it. But over the course of the evening, it's revealed that that's basically not true. He's not conforming to that stereotype. He seems to be 
actually pretty good at this hotel business thing. I mean, he didn't necessarily want to do it, but you know, his father was a strong, powerful man who insisted that you shall take over the business, and he's going to do it, and he seems to be reasonably good at it. He doesn't appear to be you know, a layabout or a waster. He does actually appear to be doing the work. But it is therefore interesting that as part of this dominatrix scenario, he has written that he is a waster and a drug addict and is going to destroy his company. I mean, he, he feels worthless and wants this to play out in this dominatrix scene. Uh, and the power dynamics and the reality of everything you, you are seeing on screen it is always, always up for debate. Uh, the film does come to some kind of conclusion. And again, I, I'm not 100% sure that's the actual truth. I'm 99% sure that's the actual truth because there comes a point where Christopher Abbott uses his safe word. So much has happened. The dynamics between the two have shifted so much that Christopher Abbott uses his safe word, which is sanctuary. And Margaret Qualley ignores it. Now, I'm not personally into the BDSM lifestyle, but I know enough about it that the safe word is sacrosanct. If somebody uses the safe word, you stop instantly and the fact that margaret qualley doesn't means one of two things either what she is saying as she is breaking the safe word is 100 percent true and that's actually what i kind of think is happening or the smaller chance is that she's so far gone she's determined to get what she's worth she's determined to get her money that she's going to fuck up Christopher Abbott no matter what happens, and her you know, professional standing, her professional ethics be damned. I kind of think it's the former. I kind of think that she is saying something that is very, very important and very, very personal to her, not the performer, not the dominatrix, but the woman, Margaret Qualley, is saying something that she needs to say. But there's still that little bit of thing. And the dynamics in this film are fascinating to explore because we have the dom-sub dynamic, we have the male-female dynamic, we have the employer-employee dynamic. You know, Margaret Qualley is being paid to be there. But it appears that for both... Christopher Abbott and Margaret Qualley, this is very, very important to them. And to some degree, does the money actually matter? I think Margaret Qualley's, you know, spiralling out of control is sparked by the fact that she is just dismissed. You know, oh, it's such a shame that we won't be doing this anymore. Hang on, wait a minute, aren't we doing this again next month? Uh, and she is so hurt by the fact that this long-standing relationship is coming to an end. I mean, for Christ's sake, Christopher Abbott gives her a watch. A very, very expensive watch, but still a watch. I mean, thank you for all you have done for me. 
here's a watch. I mean, and I see a very nice watch. I think retirement. And that's basically what I think Margaret Qualley takes it as as well. You know, she is being dismissed. She is being excluded. And that makes her so angry that she starts fucking with the mind of Christopher Albert. But how, again, how much of this is true? How much of it isn't? And what are you know the woman Margaret Qualley's feelings about this rather than the dominatrix, rather than the, the performer? I mean, Margaret Qualley says at one point, what they need from me is not physical. And she says that with what looks like a tinge of regret. I mean, this is an excellent, excellent acting performance from Margaret Qualley. I mean, I've long been impressed with her ever since I first saw her in Novitiate, which, God, must be about 10 years ago now. But yes, Margaret Qualley is an excellent actress, and she is excellent in this. And the look on her face as she says, what they need from me is not physical when she's talking about her other clients, including Christopher Abbott, there's a a wistfulness to that. And uh, I do find it interesting that it is made very, very clear repeatedly throughout the course of the film that up to this point, up to this night, they have not actually touched each other. There has not been any sexual contact between the two of them. It's all about the the mental side of things. It's all about the domination. It's all about the control. And that's a really, really fascinating dynamic as well. But of course, over the course of this night, as Margaret Crawley gets angrier and angrier and angrier, or seems to get angrier and angrier and angrier, there is physical contact between the two of them. And yeah, this is a, a really, really fascinating exploration of many many different dynamics and another dynamic which is in play is the mutual intelligence of each person i mean over the course of this night it starts to emerge that michael crawley is actually really really bright i mean not only in a necessary professional life like like deducing certain things from what she is being asked to do the fact that he has this very, very specific script that he wants to be played out. Margaret Crawley starts to deduce things from this. And then once money starts coming into the situation and argue, well, I, I, I really don't think you can deny that it's a blackmail attempt by Margaret Crawley. The way that she wants the money dealt with shows that she is financially clever as well. So there's so many fluctuating opinions about the desires and the needs of these two people and where they clash, where they overlap, where they connect. It's really, really difficult to tell. And that's what I find absolutely fascinating. I mean, like I said, I think the film does seem to come to a pretty strong, pretty rigid conclusion but uh, i'm only 99% sure that's the truth and even so i i think it's a tiny bit too hollywood for my taste 
I think it wraps up a little bit too neatly for my personal taste. But I do think it's a sensitive portrayal of kink. I do think it's a sensitive portrayal of this kind of BDSM relationship. I think this would make an excellent double feature with the really, really good Finnish film from a couple of years ago, Dogs Don't Wear Pants, which I think is still the best portrayal of a BDSM relationship I've ever seen. Well, actually, maybe Peter Strickland's The Duke of Burgundy, but as a film, there's some really, really weird shit that goes in there. But the actual relationship at the centre of Duke of Burgundy is also very, very strong portrayal of kink of BDSM. And I think Sanctuary is as well. I mean, the mind games that go on in here, not only between the characters, the two characters on screen, but also the mind games that go on between the film and an audience member. I mean, this is really, really fascinating stuff. And as I said earlier, this really, really does tick my boxes. A two-handed film with a lot of ambiguity about the truth of everything we are seeing. That's my thing. And yeah, Sanctuary is a really, really good example. And I think this is an excellent little indie film which I strongly recommend. And for me, Sanctuary, which you can find on generic VOD platforms, is a definite yay. Netflix Reviews Stamped from the beginning is the latest documentary feature by Roger Ross Williams, who is the first African-American director to win an Oscar. In the 2010 ceremony, he won the documentary Short Subject Oscar for his documentary Music by Prudence, and half-hour documentary about a disabled South African singer. And since then, he has done many highly acclaimed films in both the television and film realm. He got nominated for an Oscar for his 2017 documentary feature, Life Animated, which is excellent. And he won an Emmy for his 2020 documentary, The Apollo, which, personally speaking, I thought was fine, but not award-worthy. But anyway. But with these award-winning and award-nominated films, the film that I most associate with Roger Ross Williams is one that didn't get nominated for anything, even though it was on the documentary feature shortlist in 2013. God Loves Uganda is an outstanding documentary feature, which was on the uh, 12-film longlist as it was then but didn't get nominated. And that was actually a really, really good year because two other documentaries which didn't get nominated that year were Blackfish and Stories We Tell, which at the minimum are in my top 20 documentary features since 2010. But yes, neither of those got nominated and neither did God Loves Uganda, which documents the efforts by... American evangelical Christians, often white American evangelical Christians, 
who went to Uganda and tried to enact homophobic laws into Ugandan law and succeeded. I mean, basically, we've lost the culture war in America. Let's find somewhere where our conservative, strict, evangelical, homophobic Christianity can find root. So they went to Uganda. And these evangelical Christians openly talk about this to Roger Ross Williams, a black gay man who correctly told them, look, I come from an evangelical background myself. I don't think he told them that he was gay, but yeah, God Loves Uganda is an exceptional documentary, and that's the one that didn't get Oscar nominated, which is frustrating. Even though Life Animated is an excellent documentary as well, but yes, Roger Ross Williams is a very, very acclaimed documentarian, but this year he also made a narrative feature which is one of the reasons why I wanted to watch this particular film at this particular time. Because he made a narrative feature, Cassandro, which you will be hearing about later in this episode, about a queer luchador, one of the most famous so-called exotico luchadors, a Mexican wrestler who gets up in flamboyant clothes and plays around with gay stereotypes but Cassandro actually managed to make a very successful nearly 30 year career out of it and was actually a champion which was very very unusual for an exotico who is always the figure of fun and Roger Ross Williams made a short documentary about Cassandro and then went on to make a feature film which got released onto Amazon Prime earlier this year and I finally got around to recording my reaction video too. So I wanted to watch this documentary since it's kind of Roger Ross Williams' day job is as a documentarian. So I wanted to watch this as well as Cassandro. And just after I decided to watch this film next, this film stamped from the beginning did make it onto the 15 film long list for documentary feature Oscar. So I was going to have to watch it at some point anyway. And yes, stamped from the beginning is available on Netflix and it is essentially a film adaptation of the non-fiction book by Professor Ibram X. Kendi, a historian and professor of African American studies who wrote this book, stamped from the beginning, about the history of racist thought in America, showing how deeply ingrained racism is into the foundations of America. And this was a New York Times bestseller and all that kind of stuff, and now this Oscar-winning documentarian has made a film adaptation of it. And it has got onto the 15 film long list for documentary feature at the Oscars and is available on Netflix. So a large section of the population have a chance to watch it. And yeah, that's basically what this film is. It is 
a visual representation of the ideas in this book by Ibram X. Kendi, which I think is both a good thing and a bad thing, because these are ideas and notions which I think do need to be explored. They do need to be understood. But how you make a film out of a book like this, I think is somewhat up for debate. And what Roger Ross Williams has decided to do is something a little bit unusual. I mean, in the marketing to this film, it is described as a documentary narrative feature hybrid, which I don't think is strictly accurate. Yes, there are staged elements of this, but it feels like the kind of recreations and reconstructions which you often find in documentary features nowadays, and they do have an extra visual layer over them and an extra visual flair because all of these sequences are animated in styles which are appropriate at the time. Like when Roger Ross Williams is talking about events which happened in the 17th century, it's all made to look like woodcuts. In the 18th century, it's made to look like oil paintings. All the way through to the early 20th century, where it's made to look like black and white photography. But all these recreations and reconstructions are animated sequences, which is a really, really interesting visual style. I mean, it's engaging to look at, but I can't help feeling that this is very much along the lines of the visual aesthetics of the modern video essay. The kind of thing that you would find on YouTube or Vimeo you know, an hour, an hour and a half of stuff put on screen and just edited really, really rapidly, you know, a few seconds of this, a few seconds of that. And that's what goes on in this film. I mean, it really comes across more as a video essay than a documentary and has fully embraced that video essay aesthetics with very quick, rapid fire clips. You're like, racist cartoons from the 40s or 50s, you know, with black caricatures with thick lips. I mean, there's a, a brief moment from The Simpsons, from Rick and Morty, from advertising from the early 20th century, both television advertising and print advertising, illustrations, art from various different generations showing, you know, Black Struggle. I mean, it, just showing these things and rapidly editing them together, it really, really does come across as a video essay more than anything. And I, I think there's benefits and issues with that because, yes, we are used to that. I mean, if you watch these kinds of video essays on YouTube or Vimeo or wherever, you are used to this aesthetic. But how much does it actually come across in a supposed narrative feature? I mean, something that is available on Netflix. I think there's 
slightly different expectations. There's a slightly different aesthetic, which feels more appropriate to this format and feels more appropriate to a documentary, which is on the shortlist for documentary feature at the Oscars. It's very carefully put together, but there's so much stuff in here that you see for very brief moments. I mean, it's organised chaos is how I kind of feel about this. But the the bulk of the film does have a point because there are these reconstructions, and I find it interesting that it feels deliberate. And I'm not sure if this is Ibram X. Kendi from the original book or this is something that Roger Ross Williams brought to the project, the film project. But a lot of these stories that are being told are stories of black women who were denied the opportunity to tell their stories. Like in 1773, there was a woman named Phyllis Wheatley who was born a slave and yet published books of poetry and had to prove to the worthy men of Boston, including John Hancock, that she actually wrote these poems uh, and it you know, wasn't this bestial, subhuman thing that white people thought black people were. And she did you know, prove that she did write these poems, but the fact she had to prove it says so much in and of themselves. I mean, a couple of generations later, Harriet Jacobs wrote a slave narrative the kind of stories, the kind of true life stories that helped the abolitionist movement alongside things like 12 Years a Slave, for example. But it was so well written and so harrowing a story that people were convinced that a northern white abolitionist wrote it because it couldn't possibly be true. But of course it was. And yet again, the black woman has to prove that she wrote her own story. And then in the early 20th century, Ida B. Wells actually gathered data, gathered stories about lynchings in America and said, these lynchings are absolute bullshit, and gathered all the data, got it published, and she wasn't believed either. And all of these stories are represented in this film. You, know, we, you have very stylized oil painted animation for the story of Phyllis Wheatley. You have a more illustrated drawing for Harriet Jacobs, and then black and white photography for Ida B. Wells. But all of these stories are told through recreations. It does get the point of the film across in these reconstructions. And it does show the attitudes that are had by both the white people and the black people given these subject matters. I mean, the way that the film opens is somebody off camera, presumably Roger Ross Williams, asking all the talking heads in this film, what is wrong with black people? And naturally, there are sort of 
humorous responses to this very loaded and rather absurd question. But it does start the conversation about what this film is about. And one of the talking heads in this film is Ibram X. Kendi. And he is one of the most consistent talking heads. I mean, after all, this is based on his book. But yeah, you have these thoughts and ideas being discussed, being presented through these various talking heads. I think all of them are some form of academic, African American studies, whatever, including Angela Davis, which is really cool to see her. You know, she's still fighting, still a presence in the civil rights movement. But yeah, I, I, people like Angela Davis and Ibram X. Kendi. And yeah, it's, it's really strong seeing and hearing these ideas being presented by these academics. Oh, and there's a couple of politicians in there as well. You know, uh, I think there's a congresswoman in there as well. So yeah, it, it's a mixture of these talking heads presenting these ideas to an audience. You've got these recreations of historical incidents that demonstrate the thesis of the film. And lots and lots of pop culture you know, rapidly being edited into the film. And it really does come across as a video essay, a very, very well-produced, well-financed video essay with a very impressive cast list of talking heads, but a video essay nonetheless. And yeah, I'm not entirely sure I know how to feel about that because I, I, I'm not really sure what I was expecting from this film, but I'm not sure this was it. I think this is the kind of film which has the the label of a great starting point, I think. I mean, if you have seen other documentaries along these lines, which I have done. I mean, Ava DuVernay's 13th instantly comes to mind, which was an outstanding documentary. And this has very, very similar ideas, a very similar thesis. So if you have seen those types of stories, those types of documentaries before, I don't think there's going to be anything astoundingly new here. Oh, yes, it's been presented in this really, really strange and really exciting visual style, but the information, I'm not sure, is all that new. I mean, it really does come across as the kind of film that the people who need to see it won't see it, and the people who do see it will already have got a lot of this information already. So... Yeah, how does that work? Who does that benefit? I'm not sure. But yeah, it's an unusual film. It really is. But I do think it's a reasonably impressive film. I think the ideas presented are very impressive. The visual style, which has been created with these animated sequences, many of which seem to have been rotoscoped or, you know, the modern equivalent of rotoscoping it's impressive stuff and 
yes, it's very much a video essay, and that aesthetic maybe will turn some people off. But I think the content and the style is good enough that I do recommend it. I am not sure this is going to be on my personal list of Oscar nominees for documentary feature. I mean, I've barely scratched the surface of that particular category, but I think I've already seen several documentaries which are on that list, which I do think are highly impressive. So I don't think this is going to be on my personal list. But it is very impressive, and if you're on this film's wavelength, both ideologically and visually, I think you'll get something out of it. So, Stamped from the Beginning is available on Netflix, and for me, it is a yay. Not an exceptionally passionate yay, but Stamped from the Beginning is a yay. Next up in the Netflix section of this podcast, we have the film Nyad. And I've already talked a little bit in this episode about documentary directors making their narrative feature debut. I will be talking about Roger Ross Williams's Cassandra later. But the first example of that phenomena is here with Nyad, because this narrative feature is once again being directed by Oscar-winning documentarians. Elizabeth Chai Vasahelyi and Jimmy Chin are a married couple who won the documentary feature Oscar very deservedly for Free Solo in 2018 and have also been long-listed for the documentary feature Oscar twice. In 2015, for another climbing documentary, Maru, and in 2020, for the documentary The Rescue, dealing with the Thai cave rescue. But now, Chovas Hali and Chin are directing this narrative feature biopic of Diana Nyad, played in the film by Annette Benning who, when she was younger, was a very famous, very accomplished marathon swimmer, achieving such feats as swimming across Lake Ontario, swimming around Manhattan Island, swimming from the Bahamas to Florida, and holding the women's record for the swim from Capri to Naples which is apparently a regularly held race, which is kind of cool, actually. But Diana Nyad was this very, very successful open-water marathon swimmer, but her dream was always to swim the 110-odd miles between Cuba and Florida, through shark-infested waters, through the incredibly powerful Gulf Stream, This was her dream. And at 28 years old, she tried this and failed. Scroll forward to 2010. And on Diana Nyad's 60th birthday, she has moments of ennui. 
you know, what have I done with my life? I am surrounded by mediocrity. I need to still do something. I can still do something. So, at the age of 60, Diana Nyad conceives of the absurd idea she can still do this two-day swim between Cuba and Florida. Despite the fact she's 60 years old, she hasn't even got in the water for around 30 years. She spent the last 30 years between around 1980 and 2010 being a sportscaster on ABC in the wide world of sport. You know, the thrill of victory, the agony of defeat, all that kind of stuff. She was sent as a correspondent to the 2000 Olympics. So she hasn't done any swimming for a very long time, and she's 60. Yet she still thinks she can do it. So she goes into training, helped and encouraged by her often exasperated best friend, Jodie Foster who is also an ex-girlfriend, although it seems to be something of a cliche that any group of lesbians, eventually you will sleep with your friend group. So I don't think it's a romantic or sexual relationship anymore, but it's certainly a very, very deep, very, very powerful friendship. I mean, they say they love each other to each other and they mean it. So, yeah. Annette Benning with the often reluctant assistance of Jodie Foster, starts training for this exceptionally hard swim, which she plans to do without a shark cage at the age of 60. So, yeah. This impossible dream is planned for with the help of boat captain and navigator Reese Ifans, eventually, and an impossible dream on the horizon. Can this 60-plus-year-old woman make the two-day non-stop swim from Cuba to Key West? And they made a film about her, so probably... (laughs) And, yeah, this is, in a lot of ways, a rather typical biopic. It has the elements you expect, you know, the driven person who has a seemingly impossible dream, the people she surrounds herself with who, yes, want to try and support her, but she is self-involved to the point of selfishness and self-confident to the point of arrogance, even outright narcissism. But I think if you want to do something this impossible, you know, this 110-mile swim across open shark-infested waters, you need that kind of arrogance. You need that kind of narcissism. And I think that's one of the things which this film is presenting. And the relationship between Annette Benning and Jodie Foster is excellent. I think both of them put in outstanding acting performances. Both of them are strong contenders to get Oscar nominated. And both of them have already got Golden Globe nominations. 
Annette Benning for Best Actress in a Drama and Jodie Foster for Best Supporting Actress. And I think both of them deserve it from the limited contenders I've seen. I think both of them put in really, really strong performances. Annette Benning as this very, very driven, borderline narcissistic character, and Jodie Foster as the friend who loves her friend. I mean, these are very, very close friends. I mean, beyond romance or sex or anything like that, quite apart from the fact they're, you know, in their 60s. But the question is constantly raised in Jodie Foster's portrayal, how far are you willing to go for somebody else? I mean, the emotional and financial burdens which are put upon Jodie Foster are very, very heavy. Yet this is the absolute goal, the absolute dream of her best friend. And how far is Jodie Foster willing to go in order to achieve Annette Benning's dreams? And yeah, some of the interactions are absolutely amazing. You know, sparkling dialogue between these two characters and the relationship and the character study of both of these women is very very impressive and very very strong and yeah i think that's the thing you take most out of this film is the performances of annette benning and particularly i think jodie foster is excellent in this it's the best i've seen her in years quite honestly although actually jodie foster thinking about it doesn't actually act very much anymore but anyway really really strong performances but i think the other thing that really stands out in this film is the way it has been presented to us. Now, I I probably would have picked up on this anyway, but it's really, really noticeable the way this film has been made because I know that the directors have a background in documentary because in this type of biopic, Typically, it's all recreations, it's all narrative driven. And then, maybe right at the end, you have footage of the real people involved. But that's not the way that Nyad is made. What Chaivasahali and Chin have decided to do is, right from the beginning, put in a lot of footage of the real Diana Nyad. Essentially, what they did was everything that was in 1978 when she first attempted this, and the late 70s, early 80s, when she was famous and appearing on the Johnny Carson show and everything like that, and all the news footage of her 1978 attempt to swim from Cuba to Florida. Everything in the past is the real Diana Nyad. It's archive documentary footage. Everything in the present day, i.e. about 2010 to 2013, is Annette Bening. And that's the way they chose to do it, which is a really interesting effect. That's not something that is typical. And heavy, heavy use of documentary footage 
from 1978 and i'm pretty sure there's also some footage of the real diana nyad in 2010 as well when she's in the water when you know it's from a distance or something and it doesn't really matter that it's not annette benning i'm pretty sure there's some real footage of the 2010 diana nyad in this as well and obviously there is the 2010 diana nyad right at the end over the end credits there's real footage of the real person and actually you know her interacting with annette penning as well uh, and there's a brilliant shot over the end credits of diana nyad and annette benning swimming side by side wearing identical swimsuits obviously you know annette benning gets to know the person and getting to you know mimic her swimming style but yeah very very cool stuff but it really really does have strong documentary elements in this narrative feature and i i I would have noticed this already but the fact it is directed by documentarians oscar-winning documentarians i think really does stand out and it's really really fascinating and there's also other stuff which i don't actually want to go into because i I was surprised by it and i think it, it does classify as a spoiler i mean obviously you can look up Diana Nyad's Wikipedia page, but there's an extra element that is also done in this documentary style because in about 1989, after she had ended her marathon swimming career and had already been a sportscaster on ABC for about a decade, Diana Nyad went public with something completely different. And that's also dealt with in this film in this documentary style and we see diana and i had from 1989 talking about things which just weren't talked about in the 80s and the fact that that happened is a strong part of this film as well so yeah i mean there, there's so many elements to this i mean the character study the achievement i mean the sports movie fundamentally this is a sports movie here is a goal that this person wishes to achieve and the final scenes of the film are going to be this person achieving or not achieving their goals not accomplishing this feat so it definitely has the formula it definitely has the patterns of a sports movie as well so yeah i mean there's there's lots of good stuff going on here albeit that this isn't a film which fully follows the pattern of the sports movie because diana nyad makes this attempt to swim from cuba to florida 45 minutes into this two-hour film which is really really early for a typical sports movie but i mean that's one of the unusual things about this and yeah i think this is a fascinating character study but arguably when it comes to a truly truly outstanding film i think it adheres a little too closely to the tropes of the biopic you know the the standard signposts along the way of a biopic and i also think it may be adheres a little too closely to the strictures of the sports movie so 
Yeah, I think it's a tiny bit formulaic. So I, I wouldn't say this is a film which is going to be you know, the best film of the year or anything, but it does have two really, really strong central performances. I think both Annette Benning and Jodie Foster are outstanding. I think Reese Fans does a very good job at what he's asked to do. I mean, this is definitely a secondary character. So, yeah, a pretty standard biopic slash sports movie with two exceptionally good central performances and a really fascinating, really interesting relationship between the two of them. And judging by the (laughs) end credits, I mean, it is pretty accurate to the real-life relationship between Diana Nyad and Bonnie Stahl. There's some really cool interactions between the two of them over the end credits. You know, the real people. So, yeah. Nyad is available on Netflix, and it's got two outstanding central performances, and it's a decent film as a whole. And I kind of recommend it. So, for me, Nyad is a strong, very well-acted bah. Next up is another film you can put in the category of a prestige biopic released onto Netflix, which is in the Oscar conversation and has already got its leading performer a Golden Globe nomination. Rustin is a biopic of Bayard Rustin, the homosexual civil rights leader who organised the 1963 March on Washington. And this is the extraordinary story of this extraordinary man and the extraordinary things he managed to achieve. It is directed by George C. Wolfe, who is almost exclusively a Broadway guy, but has dipped his toe into the world of feature film directing and he also has directed an acclaimed tv movie or two in the past as well and his last feature film was also a in this prestige type of arena because his last feature film was ma rainey's black bottom and he has followed that up with this film rustin off a script written by Julian Brees and Dustin Lance Black. Julian Brees has a background mostly in television. He has been involved in the TV shows When They See Us, First Wives Club and Harlem. And Dustin Lance Black is the Oscar-winning screenwriter behind Milk and the husband of Olympic diver Tom Daly. So it's got some prestige behind it and its leading actor Coleman Domingo has already got a Golden Globe nomination and I think he's very very likely to get BAFTA and Oscar nominations as well. Telling the story of Bayard Rustin, the openly gay civil rights leader or as open as he could be in the early 1960s he wasn't trying very hard to stay in the closet but he 
was a complicated figure as far as the civil rights movement went. The chairman of the NAACP, Roy Wilkins, as portrayed by Chris Rock, had basically tried to distance himself from Rustin, despite the fact that he was a very close friend at one point of Martin Luther King Jr., as played in the film by Amal Amin. But this friendship was occasionally used as a stick to beat Martin Luther King with, so there was some distance at various points in their relationship. But this idea for the March on Washington was not a new idea in 1963. A trade unionist and civil rights leader, A. Philip Randolph, as played in the film by Glenn Turman, had a similar idea a decade earlier, but Bayard Rustin actually had the balls to try and do it, and by God he did it. With the help and occasional hindrance of Chris Rock and Amal Amin, and the annoying presence of a black congressman, Adam Clayson Powell, as played by Jeffrey Wright, who's having a hell of a year with American Fiction not too long in the future. But Jeffrey Wright first wants this march completely stopped, but when it looks like it might actually work, he wants to take credit for it. He's one of those kinds of politicians. So, Bayard Rustin navigates the complicated politics of the civil rights movement and the fact that he is a homosexual in 1963 is very much a part of the problem. And we also spend time with his personal life. During the course of the film, he has a relationship with a young white activist, Gus Halper, and a very closeted black pastor who's involved in the civil rights movement, Johnny Ramey. So will Bayard Rustin manage to pull off this extraordinary feat of getting a quarter of a million people in the same place at the same time for a peaceful protest? Well, we know that he did succeed because, you know, it's very well known. They're making a biopic about it. But I think it's worth pausing briefly to contemplate how unlikely this whole thing was. We would take for granted that speech that Martin Luther King Jr. gave, you know, I have a dream. But getting 250,000 people onto the mall in Washington for the March for Jobs and Freedom, how do you manage to do that, particularly when everybody is standing in your way? I mean, the white establishment, the presidency is standing in your way. The civil rights movement itself is not helping in, in places actively hindering your attempts. Yet Bayard Rustin managed to do it. And yeah, it, it, it's just extraordinary. It's one of those great moments in history. I mean, how many times have we seen that clip of Martin Luther King on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial? I mean, I actually visited Washington 
what, 15 years ago? Something like that. I mean, I'm a fan of American football, as might have been picked up on various of these podcasts. And I made a couple of trips to America to watch American football games. And one of them was to Washington. And I visited the Lincoln Memorial. And I realised that I wasn't there for Lincoln. I was there for Martin Luther King Jr. And there's a little brass plaque on the marble steps of the Lincoln Memorial saying this is where the podium was that Martin Luther King Jr. gave that speech. And that's the reason I wanted to be there. That's the reason I wanted to visit that place. It was for King. It wasn't for Lincoln. And I think we kind of take that for granted nowadays, but just examining how extraordinary an achievement this was is worth considering. And yeah, I think this film does an excellent job of bringing us to that place. And particularly through the acting performance of Colin Domingo, who I think is outstanding playing this very forthright, very flamboyant character who is what today we would call camp, very, very camp. I'm not sure if that would be the term in 1963, but he's not trying very hard to hide the fact he is a homosexual. It's a consistent rumour and hear legal troubles from his past sometimes come up as a rod to beat his back with from both sides, from both the black civil rights movement and the American authorities. You know, how dare you be a homosexual and try and be involved in the civil rights movement? And the the conflict that he feels. I mean, he he doesn't feel any personal conflict. I mean, he, in the film at least, claims to have had a supportive family. So, I mean, personally, he's not bothered by it. But he is bothered by how this is another thing which can be used against him personally and the civil rights movement at large. Which Bayard Rustin had a very, very important impact on. He was raised as a Quaker, and he claims, and probably to some degree accurately claims, to have come up with the idea of passive resistance. You know, not fighting, not being angry, just sitting down at lunch counters, sitting down in segregated buses, and if they come to beat you, don't do anything, don't retaliate. He claims to have come up with that, and I think there's some legitimacy to that. So he is a very, very pivotal figure in the civil rights movement, but I think to some degree he has been pushed to the side because of the uncomfortableness that the wider world has with his homosexuality. And as I said, he personally was pretty comfortable with it. And he also had that charisma, that drive to get the the young people 
into this movement to get them fired up and enthusiastic to get this achievement done. He managed to do that and people followed him, including this young white boyfriend of his, who I don't think is a historically accurate figure, but representative of the types of people that Bayard Rustin was sleeping with at this time. But we get to see all these different aspects of his life. Uh, And I think the script by Julian Brees and Dustin Lance Black is actually very, very good. I think there's a not unreasonable chance that this will get into the Oscar debate. The ways that it tells the story, I mean, yes, in places it does have that biopic style approach of we are telling you this as an audience because you need to know it. I mean, setting up everything that we as an audience need to know. But in general, I think it does it in a an elegant way, in a naturalistic way. And it also manages to get that charisma across, or at least allows Coleman Domingo to get that, the charisma of this character across. And it tells us at every point the types of things that people like Bayard Rustin had to do in order to get this extraordinary achievement done. The balance between being informative and being gripping and telling us all these little things, like you know, people like the NAACP chairman Chris Rock, this politician Jeffrey Wright, doing everything they can to stand in the way. The fact that CCH Pounder shows up as an academic and she makes the point that there's no women scheduled to speak at the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. And also giving us details about the practicalities of this situation. I mean, getting 250,000 people in this place, that's a logistical problem. How do you feed them? How do you water them? How do you get them there in the first place? Well, the answer is you go to rich white people and ask for donations so you can commission hundreds and hundreds of buses. How do you police this crowd? Well, you get the Brotherhood of Black New York policemen to show up and wear particular white hats and white armbands and you train them in non-aggression and that's a a fascinating scene Uh, and yeah there's so many details in this which are fascinating and engagingly presented and as i said i think the acting performance of coleman domingo is genuinely brilliant i hope he does get an oscar nomination of the performances i've seen so far i think he's definitely going to be on my list and of the ones that i still have yet to see i think there's a really strong chance he's going to remain on my list i'd actually take him over leonardo dicaprio which is not something i ever expected to say i mean leonardo dicaprio was the early front runner but i think killian murphy and bradley cooper are definitely the first two names in the hat haven't seen maestro yet but we'll have to see but yeah anyway that's 
for my Oscar preview shows later. But yeah, Common Domingo is genuinely brilliant in this film. I think his acting performance is excellent. And the film itself is not just a bland standard biopic. I mean, yes, it has some of those traits that you come to expect from a biopic like this. But I think Rustin manages to pull it off really, really well. So yes, for me, I think Rustin is mainly worth watching for the performance of Common Domingo, but I think it exceeds simply being an acting showcase. I think it is more than that, and I do think it's actually a film I recommend. So Rustin is available on Netflix, and for me, it is a yay. Amazon Prime Reviews Cassandro is, as I have already talked about in this episode, directed by Roger Ross Williams, the acclaimed documentarian behind such films as God Loves Uganda, Life Animated, The Apollo, and Stamped from the Beginning. And this narrative feature was sparked by the documentary short that Roger Ross Williams made, The Man Behind the Mask about Cassandro, following an article in The New Yorker. Roger Ross Williams is not only directing this film, but also co-writing it alongside a long-time collaborator of his, David Teague, who has an extensive background as an editor of documentaries including Roger Ross Williams' documentaries Life Animated and American Jail. He has also acted as an editor on other acclaimed documentaries like Cutie and the Boxer and Spaceship Earth. He is also credited as the writer of Roger Ross Williams' documentary Stamped from the Beginning. So both of Roger Ross Williams' directorial releases in 2023 did have David Teague as a co-writer. And they tell the story of Cassandro, Saul Armendariz, as played by Gail Garcia Bernal, is a gay wrestler who was born in El Paso, Texas, and started his career just across the border in Ciudad Juarez. Initially as an undersized, masked luchador, he wasn't getting any respect, but then it was suggested to him that he become an exotico, a flamboyantly queer-coded type of character who was always the butt of the joke, was designed to make the crowd hate them, playing on every queer stereotype you've ever seen, and... Yeah, initially, Saul was reluctant to do this, but once he agreed to become Cassandro El Exotico, he actually had a remarkable amount of success. And unlike most Exoticos in the world, he actually ended up winning a title. In 1991, he was the first Exotico to win a title in the UWA promotion which has since morphed into the triple a promotion in mexico probably the biggest 
promotion in Mexico at the moment. I mean, the, the big two are AAA and CMLL. I am a fan of professional wrestling. Cassandro was a very big success. He's still wrestling, even at the age of 53, or certainly has been in the near past, and is one of the most in-demand and most popular exoticos in history. And Gal Garcia Bernal plays him in this film, accompanied by his trainer, played by Roberta Colindres, his mother, played by Perla de la Rosa, his very closeted boyfriend, Raul Castillo, and also in the film is Bad Bunny, the multi-multi-million dollar selling Latin rap artist and huge wrestling fan and occasional wrestler for the WWE. Bad Bunny plays a local gangster who Cassandro is flirting with outrageously. And also making an appearance in the film is the real-life legendary luchador El Hijo del Santo, the son of Santo, who was the wrestler who gave Cassandro his big break. And El Hijo del Santo plays himself. So, yes... I am a fan of professional wrestling. I mean, it has to be said I'm a fan of American professional wrestling. And I'm not so familiar with the Lucha Libre culture of Mexico. But I am a fan of professional wrestling. And I was very aware of Cassandro and the culture of exoticos in Mexican wrestling. And in preparation for the reaction video I did to... Cassandro, and I'm in the process of editing. It's already been blocked once by the copyright protections, and I'm re-editing it again. Who knows whether it'll be up by the time this audio podcast gets released, but I am working on a reaction video to this film, Cassandro, which is one of the reasons why this podcast is so late. But because I did all the research on Cassandro before I did that reaction video, I can see where Roger Ross Williams has fudged things a little bit. I mean, sometimes when it comes to a narrative feature, particularly one based on a true story, your reaction to a film and your enjoyment of a film can be affected by how much you are familiar with the true life story. And since I am so familiar with the story of Cassandro, and because I'm a fan of professional wrestling, I am also cognizant of how professional wrestling works, all the behind-the-scenes stuff which happens. I can see where Roger Ross Williams is getting it wrong. And I, I can kind of see why he's getting it wrong, but I know where he's getting it wrong. And there's some really, really weird details that just aren't in this film or are really stretched in this film. And I ended up a lot of the time thinking, well, hang on, that didn't happen. That didn't happen then. Uh, and that was kind of what, I was having my response to when I was watching this film. 
I mean, as far as the real-life biographical details of Saul Amandares, a.k.a. Cassandra, go, in real life, his father was physically abusive to both him and his mother, and that's not portrayed on screen. In real life, this pivotal match, the, the match that basically made Cassandra's career against El Hijo del Santo, happened in 1991, and his mother passed away in 1997. But in the film, his mother passes away just before he's about to have this match with El Hijo del Santo, and that spirals him off out of control. And yes, he did have severe problems with drugs and alcohol after his mother died, and he also attempted suicide a week before this big match against El Santo, and that is nowhere in this film. Unfortunately, he was rescued by a fellow exotico named Pimpinella Escarletta, and the fact that Pimpinella Escarletta is not in this film, I think, is an oversight, because Cassandra and Pimpinella Escarletta have been colleagues and companions and tag team partners for years, for basically the entirety of their careers. They were connected, and Pimpinella Escaleta is not in this film at all. So there's biographical information, biographical details which they get wrong. They also get wrong how professional wrestling works. I'm familiar enough and I've heard enough stories about the behind-the-scenes politics and the behind-the-scenes structures of professional wrestling that I can say categorically this is not how it works. As portrayed on screen, you have wrestlers who are basically just beating each other up in the ring and going into the ring having no idea what they're going to do. They haven't planned anything out. And yes, if you are a very experienced wrestler and you've worked with that person a lot in the past, you can have a match where you just call it in the ring. Just say, right, you do that, I'll do this, we, we can both do that. But it, that's very uncommon. It's much, much more common. I mean, it's standard to figure out what is going to happen in the ring before you actually go in the ring. You have everything planned. You have everything choreographed. You know what the spots are going to be. But that's not how it works in this film. There's also scenes where the winner of the match gets changed mid-match by the promoter, and that doesn't happen in real life. And as portrayed in this film, you have a situation where this very undersized performer, and Cassandro, while stocky, is very short. I mean, the real-life Cassandro. I mean, Gal Gal Supernal is very, very skinny in this film. But having that kind of wrestler suddenly become a fan favourite and suddenly figure out all the moves that needs to get himself over, that is very, very uncommon as well. I mean, just taking off the mask. I mean, in the film, his masked character is El Topo. The Mole, which I can't help feeling was inspired by the Alejandro Jodorowsky film, since in real life Cassandro's masked luchador name at the beginning of his career was Master Romano, you know, a gladiator kind of 
approach or, or that was the intention anyway i mean i've seen pictures it looks nothing like a roman gladiator but that was what it was supposed to be and just taking off the mask and suddenly becoming popular suddenly having the self-confidence to do all the moves that doesn't really happen and you know this narrative that the film has of getting in touch with this female trainer played by roberta Calindres. And again, that is a biographical detail which isn't right. I mean, as portrayed in the film, this self-taught wrestler gets onto wrestling shows, which again, doesn't happen, and only then gets proper training from Roberta Calindres. Whereas in real life, Saul Almandara spent two years training under the highly respected luchador Rey Mysterio Sr. in Tijuana. But that is part of the whole narrative which Roger Ross Williams seems to be wanting to portray. Because basically what we have here is the Rocky template. We have the story of a luchador, a fighter, toiling in obscurity and then being plucked out of obscurity by the big champion. And that makes his career. And that's essentially what the narrative of this film is. And that's not what happened. I mean, Cassandro Saul Amandares became very, very popular because he was a good wrestler, because he knew how to be flamboyant in the right way. And because he was born in El Paso, he spoke fluent English, which meant he had many, many more opportunities than your average exotico in places like America and Britain. He stalled many, many times here in the UK because he speaks fluent English. And I think it also has to be said that he's a bit of a self-promoter. The amount of documentaries and articles I've seen available about Cassandro is much, much more extensive than your average luchador. So, yes, I think he's very well-versed in the art of self-promotion as well. So, yeah, I mean, that's the narrative. Uh, and yes, he is a very successful Exotico. I mean, he did the very, very rare thing of actually winning a belt, which is kind of why I thought we were making this film, is because here is an Exotico who broke the trend and actually won the belt. And forcing this narrative into the template of Rocky, which it doesn't really fit. I mean, the template of Rocky doesn't really suit the real life story but that's what we're doing and yet we don't actually see cassandra winning a belt we see the big match which made him against el hijo del santo but we don't show the match the following week where he actually won a belt not off el hijo del santo and maybe that has something to do with it when you've got the real life el hijo del santo in this film as himself it could be a situation where he said, well, yes, the big moment was me, wasn't it, when I won the championship against this plucky underdog. So maybe that has something to do with it, but it feels like we're lacking something because we don't see the moment Cassandro genuinely becomes a star and wins that bout in the promotion that would become AAA, one of the biggest promotions in the world. It just baffles me that that decision was made. And also the, the truth about the personal life and the private life of Cassandra, the family life. The fact that his father was physically abusive 
to both him and his mother does not come up in this film. And in fact, by the end of the film, we have a moment where Cassandro sits down across a table from his father. I mean, the first time we've ever seen his father on screen, because I mean, there's a recurring thing that Cassandro's mother parks in the parking lot of a baseball diamond and from afar watches her ex-husband coaching baseball. And yeah, he's very wistful. Yeah, if only you hadn't come out, if only you, your father needed to reject you because he's so religious. And yeah, being all that, that kind of thing. And it's a melancholy thing, but watching him from a distance. And again, that did not happen in real life. But by the end, we have a moment where for the first time we see Cassandro's father. And it's a moment of so slight reconciliation where Cassandro says, there was a point where I needed you. I don't need you anymore. I'm now Cassandro. I mean, I have moved past my need for your approval, which is a moment of catharsis. It, it makes sense in a standard sports biopic, which is in a lot of ways what this is. But that is not the real story of Saul Amandares. So what are we doing here? You're making this a Rocky movie, and you're making this a movie about a father-son relationship and reconciling that father-son relationship. And neither of those things is appropriate for the story of Cassandro. So what Roger Ross Williams and his co-writer David Teague were doing, making it those things, I'm really not sure. So yes, the acting of Gael Garcia Bernal is excellent, and he did a surprising amount of the wrestling stuff himself. I mean, it's interesting to me, because he, he didn't do the drop kick, but he did a lot of the other stuff. He, he clearly did the training, and the acting as this very flamboyant character is excellent. Also very good is Raul Castillo as the closeted luchador boyfriend who has a wife and two sons, but is still on the down low screwing Cassandro whenever he has the opportunity, whenever his wife is out of town. And there is a sex scene between Raul Castillo and Gail Garcia Bernal. And if you're curious about that kind of thing, there's also a kiss between Gail Garcia Bernal and Bad Bunny, which I basically think is the only reason that Bad Bunny was cast in this film. I mean, all the publicity was around Bad Bunny and he's actually barely in the film. But anyway... The acting of Raul Castillo is excellent. The acting of Gal Gal is excellent. Roberta Calindrez as well. I'm not familiar with her, but she was very good as well. So yeah, the acting all around is excellent. As a sports biopic, it basically functions. But in this particular situation, I am familiar enough with the real life story that I can say... A lot of this is bullshit, and that does affect my enjoyment of the film as a whole. So, well acted, but poorly adapted from real life. And Cassandro is available on Amazon Prime Video, and for me, it is a meh. The Ace There are three films in this episode which, in my mind, qualify as a yay. The first of which is Sanctuary, which, as I said in my review, really does tick a couple of my buttons. 
It is a two-handed film, which always intrigues me. And it is a film where the truth of everything you are seeing on screen is seriously up for debate. Are the things that are being said true? Or are there unsaid things, unspoken things, which mean more, which are the actual truth? Is there any truth? to what is going on and it doesn't come up very often but i'm also interested in films which have a sensitive portrayal of kink this is a film which understands the bdsm mindset and the bdsm lifestyle understands the dynamics which go on within it and understands what happens when those dynamics break down which potentially they do in this film i mean i think both acting performances are great particularly margaret qualley who is rapidly becoming one of my favorite actresses working at the moment and yeah sanctuary is a really really cool little film a chamber piece which has so much richness and so much complexity to it that i really really do recommend it You will be able to find it on your streaming service of choice, and I thoroughly recommend Sanctuary, which for me is a yay. And the other two films that qualify as yays are both films about race that you can find on Netflix. Firstly, the documentary by Roger Ross Williams, Stamped from the Beginning, which... I really do think it's more of a video essay than an out-and-out documentary. But the ideas presented in this film, which presumably come directly from the book by Ibram X. Candy, they are presented in such a rich and vibrant way, using a lot of animation, using a lot of rotoscoping-style things with what seems to be live-action material painted over or modified probably by computers nowadays i mean it it looks like you know some very elaborate very well done filters more than anything but it still works it has these ideas ideas which yes can be seen as a little bit basic maybe i think this is you know an introduction to some of these ideas i think People with common sense, people who are explorers in these kinds of realms, will have a lot of stuff in this film which they already know, which they have seen before. Equally, there are things in this film which you haven't seen before. So, yes, I think all around, stamped from the beginning, is a very, very worthwhile documentary slash video essay. I don't think think it will get nominated for the documentary feature oscar but the fact it's on the 15 film long list is a very impressive statement in and of itself so yes i do recommend stamped from the beginning on netflix which is a yay as is rustin which yes largely is an acting showcase for coleman domingo I think he thoroughly deserved his nomination at the Golden Globes. I think he's going to get a nomination at the Oscars. And he will thoroughly deserve it. I mean, this 
flamboyant but driven and determined character who has this absurd idea for this large-scale march on Washington and actually manages to make it happen against all odds. And I say again, I think we take for granted just how extraordinary that march was because we're so used to seeing Martin Luther King making the I Have a Dream speech on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. But everything that happened in order to get him there is a fascinating story in and of itself. So yes, largely it is an acting showcase but it is also informative and entertaining and it works as a film and i do think it is worth watching and for me rustin is also a yay so during the recording of this episode once again i had my reaction video to Cassandro knocked back by the copyright protections. Because of all the clips I'd used from professional wrestling, because I did want to make a point about queer representation in professional wrestling, I used a lot of clips from WWE programming. And the strictures are just completely ridiculous. A good rule of thumb when you're making reaction videos like this is 30 seconds is your limit. As long as your clip is under 30 seconds, most companies will let you get away with that. There are some more strict companies, I mean like CBS, I've had so much trouble with my charmed TV reactions. But eventually, this last time, the WWE was knocking back my video because I'd used silent 10-second clips of WWE programming, and that was enough for them to knock it back. So, quite honestly, I've just given up. I cannot be bothered editing and editing and editing and shaving it down to such a degree that it's not even the video I intended to make anymore. So that Cassandro reaction video will never now see the light of day. And my only response to the film Cassandro is this audio review in this audio podcast. But yes, that has been very, very frustrating over the last couple of weeks. But I've given up and you will never see that reaction of Cassandro on my YouTube channel. But I am still uploading my Charmed reaction videos, again, which I'm having difficulty with the copyright protections. And now I'm overdue to start working on my Best of the Year videos for my YouTube channel. Once again, I am planning to release a top 10 cinematic films of 2023, a top 10 streaming films of 2023, and the Golden Taps Awards, my personal Oscars, where I hand out Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Screenplay, Best Director, etc., etc. So, yes, that is now going to be the focus of my efforts on my YouTube channel. But, never fear, there is still going to be some content on this audio channel. As I announced in the last episode, my next streaming 
effort will be a Netflix animation special with at least five, possibly even six animated features from Netflix, since I've got so many which fit into that particular category. And the next cinematic episode will be reviewing the Oscar Beatty films which are out cinematically this week, Poor Things and The Boys in the Boat, and also another Oscar Beatty film, 20 Days in Mariupol. There is a special free screening, or a screening which I can get into for free with my membership card to Picture House, but the Little Theatre is having a screening of 20 Days in Mariupol. And I've already paid for this documentary. It did make it onto the long lists for both international feature and documentary feature. Ukraine submitted it because it is about a bunch of journalists who were trapped in the eastern Ukrainian city of Mariupol as the Russians invaded. So it's going to be incredibly harrowing and therefore it's probably best to see it in the cinema because I know me and if I watched it at home I'd just be pausing every five minutes in order to sort of avoid watching it. So just watching it in the cinema and gritting my teeth is probably the best plan. And there is a cinematic screening of it. So I will be including that review of 20 Days in Mariupol in the next cinematic episode alongside my reviews of Poor Things and The Boys in the Boat. And that is most likely the next thing in this particular audio feed, but also look out for that Netflix animation special. And I think that's all I have for this episode. So all that remains for me to say is this has been an episode of the Yay, Nay or Mare podcast. I've been your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. Email is yaynayormare at gmail.com and you can find me on Twitter slash X, TikTok and YouTube at yaynayormare. And I will see you next time where I shine a light on cinema, both obvious and obscure. <laughs>